You're listening to the Purpose Driven Person Podcast. This podcast is made for leaders unwilling to give up their desires to be purpose driven. Guys, I made this show for a compass for you to have more purpose in leadership through four concepts creation, communication, collaboration, and connection in both business and in life. My name is Matthew Leland Cox. I'm the founder of Never Give Up Youth Healing Center, Never Give Up Wellness Center, and Never Give Up Foundation. You can find me at MatthewLelandCox.com. Are you ready? Well, let's do this. All right, welcome to the show. I'm excited with this show. I have a good friend, a long long time friend, and also, yeah, it's been a while, Dr. James Aston. And I didn't know you by then, that back in the day, it was just Aston. Well, I called you Aston because we, yeah, we, we, we kind of served a, a church mission a long time ago in Hawaii. That was, those were the days, right? That was over 20 years ago, if you believe it. Yeah, I can't. Well, I try not to, but it's. <laughs> and here I am reminding you. Yeah. How many kids now do you have? I have two. Uh, five. Five kids. Okay, you're ahead of me. Five well, kids. We, we needed five copies of my wife to make the world a better place. So I, I obliged her. I tell my wife that all the time. I said, oh, see that anger? That's his. That's you. <laughs> <laughs> it she, couldn't be me. Yeah, she's, well, my kids, they got, they got kind of fun of the both worlds. They got, uh, so my oldest, he's, he's, uh, they got, uh, she's from Mexico. So they got part Mexican in him. So they got that, mm-hmm. that temper, you know. All right. Well, we won't say temper. We call it passion in the home. It's fire, right? They fire. got that, that spice. Yeah, and they're they're fun. Uh, three three year old three's three's a fun age. Three or four. Mm-hmm. Uh, my ten year old that starts getting frustrating, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you you have yeah, older ones. Yeah, my oldest is also ten. Oh, okay. And yeah. I do have a three year old. She'll turn four in the next few weeks. All right. So, so I'm exactly what you're talking about. <laughs> with me. All right. Cool. I'm there with you. Well, well, Dr. Aston, you, you've been, um, how long have you, well, you went to school. We were just chatting before the show. Um, you were helping me explain the difference of, let, let's let the audience kind of get to know you a little bit. You know, you, we, we met, we've been friends for a long time. Right, and, and right. Tell me when you decided to do med school. I always loved interviewing doctors because it's okay. just a crazy thing. Uh, this is going to sound uh, really out there, but... Um, I decided to go to medical school when I was working as a used car salesman. Okay. Uh, I kid you not. That was, uh, for me, it was a good paying job, but it was the worst job I had ever had. Um, <laughs> it's one of those things where you're, you're doing the Martin Short thing going, I'm good enough, I'm smart enough, and doggone it, people like me, you know? Yeah. Uh, <laughs> you wake up in the morning and you realize you have to go to work that day. And it's a Saturday and you go, why am I doing this? This is, this is <laughs> And uh, my wife uh, went out to visit some family for a, a week and came back and we sat down with each other and looked at each other, each other and said, we, we got to do something different. And I had thought about medical school in the past, but I hadn't done as well on some of the uh, intro courses that everyone had to take. So I was a, a little leery about going back, but we decided that was going to be the best bet. <laughs> That uh, sales was not my thing, at least auto sales. Um, and so um, we went back, and it's been oh. quite right ever since then. That was back in uh, 2004, I want to say, 2003. So 2003, so it went fast. 
So, so it's car salesman. That is the first time I've ever heard that. So you went <laughs> from car salesman to med school. So, so did you ever, did you have an interest in medicine? Like, uh, but you said you'd try or you were, you tried. I, well, I hadn't thought about it. Uh, yeah. I come from a family that there were no healthcare workers in my family. My, my father was a helicopter pilot. Uh, my mother was a, uh, a school teacher. Yeah. And uh, so I didn't really know what it meant to be a physician. Uh, I didn't have any frame of reference other than television, right? And, you know, the television is a great frame of reference to decide what kind of work you're going to go into because right. they always represent everything so accurately. Right. Trace anatomy and... Uh, yeah, ER, you know, back in the day, MASH. Yeah. <laughs> oh, MASH was my favorite show. I did like MASH. Yeah, match was but, good. But uh, yeah, so it's not what you see on TV is what you're saying. It's uh, that's right. <laughs> that's right. So you survived med school. Mm-hmm. Was how was that? Because a lot of times when I ask doctors that they well, yeah, they, they say it's like trying to drink from a fire hydrant that's turned on, and that is a very accurate description of all the information thrown at you. And, you know, the frustrating thing with medical school is about 10 years after you're out of medical school, all the things they taught you were obsolete. <laughs> and we're seeing that even nowadays with the information that's constantly being discovered in the medical field. Some, much of what we learned is still good, but uh, there is a, a quick procession from treatment to treatment, protocol to protocol, procedure to procedure that changes uh, once you get out of school. So, but it was a excellent, excellent experience. I, I went to school in Philadelphia and loved my four years there. I loved the school there. I went to the Philadelphia College of Osteopathic Medicine, one of the oldest osteopathic schools in the country. And yeah, it was great. Uh, so, and in, in, in I like the analogy used like a fire hose because it's it gets overwhelming. My brother's a PA. He explained the okay. same way. He said it was just overwhelming. Uh, you don't really start learning medicine until you get into your residency. Like the books were good. It's like just, hey, this is the fire hose. Now go learn, right? Right. And with the medical school, it's a little bit different than the PA setup um, in that uh, you do your first, generally you do your first two years in uh, clinical sciences and uh, actual sciences, uh, cellular sciences, chemistry, those kinds of things, anatomy. And then once you get into your third year, you start doing what's called rotations, where you spend anywhere from four to six weeks with a particular specialist. And uh, you work in their clinic, you see what they're doing, you help them with documentation, or you spend time in the hospital seeing patients, documenting patients and getting experience that way. So that's really where your clinical experience begins about two years into your medical schooling. So all together, you did about 10 or 12 years. All together with training. So if we're including um, bachelor's degree, so I did, my my training was a little prolonged. I did two bachelor's degrees. I'm kind of a glutton for punishment, I guess. Uh, but the, the traditional approach is uh, four to five years in undergrad and then uh, five uh, four years in medical school, which is, Incidentally, also considered undergraduate education, despite mm-hmm. the fact that you're going for a graduate degree. So that's uh, eight to nine years off the top. And then you go to residency, which is postgraduate training. And the shortest residency out there is family medicine at three years. 
And uh, then if you go to fellowship or subspecialties, you can be in residency for anywhere from three to upwards of 10 years if you're super subspecialized. What, what did you end up doing? So, I did uh, three years of residency in family medicine, and then I did an additional one-year residency in neuromusculoskeletal medicine. Oh, wow. And while I was doing that, I was introduced by one of the um, physicians that uh, I was working with to performing arts medicine. And uh, he started up a brand new fellowship that's never been done anywhere in the world. And I just happened to be the person that was the first person to go through that fellowship. So uh, I guess I'm super subspecialized from family medicine <laughs> through performing arts medicine. We, we just, so, we don't say super special, but subspecialized, right? Yeah. Well, we are super special too, you and I both. I, I, yes. I, if you're anything like me, I'm, I'm definitely super special. <laughs> no, I, I love this. This is cool that you, um, you, you I mean, because a lot of people, I think a lot of people don't realize that, um, you know, in your practice as uh, residency, you get paid very little, right? When you're doing your residency. Yeah, yeah. There was a time in residency that I was making less than a living wage, and I know living wages are all the uh, rage to talk about right now. But um, and that didn't help that I had five kids at that point. Yeah. But um, you do make very little, and then the average resident works between sixty to eighty hours a week, um, which is down from the average of what it used to be one hundred and twenty a week. So you do work a lot for little pay with the hope that your salary as an attending will make up for that eventually. Yeah. It's crossing fingers, right? Cause I, yeah, I was thinking, um, you know, you get into my, I think my brother was explaining the debt goes up with school and then you, you're, you're, it's kind of like a gamble. Can I get a job? Hopefully yep. um, I had a doctor that I knew he was a orthopedic surgeon. Okay. And, and okay. attendance, they know, average if they get hired on they'll make 500,000 or more a year right around in there but he says it's a gamble because you get it's very high comp competition um, yeah did you do any ER rounds of course we all have to yeah we all do our time I, in the ER you know I was just doing a I just did a certification for compassion fatigue um, <laughs> well, and, uh, yeah that, yeah now that is important yeah. yeah, that is important. One of my favorite books, and I forget the authors, it's, it's called Bounce. Okay. And, it's, and you've probably heard of this book in your profession. Um, uh, and it's written for the folks who have to expend a lot of energy and compassion because of the fatigue. Yeah, I just entered uh, a good friend of mine. I interviewed him uh, last week. And so Dr. Seeger, he was an ER physician for years. And we talked about that. He said it got so bad he he couldn't go. He he had anxiety when he'd start going into the ER um, as a physician. He had the he had a, then he went into psychiatry. Um, From yeah. ER to psychiatry. He was a psych nurse, psych doc for a while. He he transitioned in the ER to become the psych doc, and then now he's just prescribing on the outpatient. But he he kind of explained that he he suffered from post-traumatic stress for several years after being in, in the ER for so long. It's easy to have happen because you see so much in the ER and in medicine in general. There's a reason why physicians commit suicide at a higher rate than any other commensurate um, specialty uh, or profession. 
you know, the, the engineers and lawyers just don't kill themselves as much as docs do because there is that component of compassion fatigue um, when a life uh, is in your care and you can't save it. It's, it's tough to deal with. Um, I will never forget as an intern, um, we had a patient come into the ICU and we were just putting in what's called a nasogastric tube. So you put a tube through the nose down into the belly to give them food. And the patient was still lucid and interacting with us. I was just about to go and do the history and physical exam and she crashes out of the blue. We do CPR for nearly 20 minutes and, and couldn't save her. And that was a, a watershed moment for me to realize how close life and death is when you work as a physician. And it can happen at any time. It can happen in an outpatient setting. It can happen when your patient just leaves your office. It can happen in the hospital. So, wow. yeah, we, we do have a lot of that to deal with. Yeah, and, that, and that's the crazy thing is um, you, you people don't realize uh, what – you, you deal with as a physician. We just know, hey, you probably see this. I love it. Hey, I'm a doctor. Oh, you know, my arm hurts. And because right. we, as a society, we, we don't realize what it, what you go through to become a doctor. Right. Um, right. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really cool. I mean, I, I, it, from knowing you from when we were young teenagers, crazy in Hawaii, and now you're Dr. Aston. Um, but now let's let's explain to the listeners because I know I I I've always loved uh, the practice of a do. I, usually when I go to a family, when I have my primary physician, it's usually a do. Um, the reason I I shop for that, and you helped me explain it. I just knew they were more um, homeopathic. Is that the right term? They they like well, homeopathic is a very specific uh, specialty um, that doesn't come through medical school. Homeopathy, uh, by uh, Dr. Hahnemann back in the 1800s, uh, which is a a different approach. Uh, we can get into if you'd like to, but um, I think what you were trying to get at is more of this approach where we take an, a patient and look at them and their surrounding environment to get yes. a better picture of what's causing whatever illness they present to you with. The idea is that a patient is not just their disease process. So for example, someone comes in with diabetes and that patient is just not, not just a diabetic, but what if they're in a, a food desert that we like to call them where they can't get the right food uh, to help maintain their blood pressure, not their blood pressure, but their blood sugars. So we would look at that environment in which they are living and, and um, experiencing life and use that as, the way, as a way to change how we approach the patient and adjust the way we're working with the patient. Yeah, and, and I like that approach because it's kind of that instead of just treating the symptom, mm -hmm. you're, you're actually looking at the environment. It's kind of like, hey, what's going on? And I, we call that in mental health the 360, you know, look at everything. So yes. if, if yes. the person comes in and they're having mental health issues, people don't realize it could be, hey, I'm not managing my diabetes, therefore depression sits in. Mm -hmm. uh, when your blood sugar is low, you start seeing some mania, some other things that set in. Exactly. Um, exactly. People don't, yeah. So that whole 360, we spend so much time on the uh you know, millions on the body, pennies on the brain, right? And right. So if you, so I love this approach. 
we we call it the biosocial so um, uh, biopsychosocial model. So we look at the biology and the environment. We look at the psychology of what's going on and how the patient's responding to it, and then um, the social component. Because you probably know that um, chronic pain, for example, is processed in the same part of the brain as emotions. Mm-hmm. So when you have someone who's major has major depression. And they also have fibromyalgia, right? Um, those co- often go hand in hand. And if you can get one of them treated, the other often will improve. <laughs> well, which one do you treat first? Well, you try to treat them both at the same time if you can to help yeah. improve the outcomes. Um, I have plenty of patients come into my office saying, hey, doc, I want to uh, go up on my uh, psych meds, you know, like Prozac or my Zoloft or whatnot. And usually my first approach is, well, why don't we get you some tools to help first to go with that med, like CBT or other kinds of therapies, uh, so that when someone has an anxious moment, that they're not just relying on their medications to overcome that. And I love that's how kind of what you guys do really works hand in hand with what we do. Yeah, I love it because... At the end of the day is all the, you know, over 20 years now being in the field, it's just, you see medicine and mental health have to start lining up really well because it's, uh, we're seeing a lot, especially through this pandemic, this fun thing that we just occurred. Now you, you know, firsthand you were affected by it, right? You ended up getting positive. I, I was infected by a patient most likely. Yeah. And, and, um, how was that journey? I, I mean, I got to watch some of your videos when you're doing the exercises. Was it tough? Uh, the exercise did change. My, my ability to, to do exercise changed significantly. Mm-hmm. And probably the most difficult aspect of this whole viral thing is not knowing how your body is going to respond. Because, you know, some people smooth sailing. They don't even get symptoms. They just pop positive one day and, oh, I didn't even know I was sick. Where other people, they think they're doing okay and then all of a sudden crash, boom, and they're dead. Um, so when when you do come positive, you, you get that feeling that, okay, how is this going to go for me? And uh, you, the reason I continued to exercise was I wanted to show everyone else that that was still possible still a possibility and tried to maintain as much status quo as I could, knowing that, you know, this is a dangerous illness. And any time uh, in my life, there could be some side effect from this coming out. We will never know until it happens, if it happens. So, yeah. it's. Oh, it's I'm, glad you, I'm, I'm glad you got through it. <laughs> so far, so good. <laughs> yeah. So you, we, we've, been crazy just watching i mean from a medical standpoint probably but also just from a world standpoint it's been crazy so it's well it has been that and uh, the whole mental health component um i think that this this pandemic has revealed some weaknesses in how we as a society manage mental health um and some of us who've been reading about mental health and the different uh, components of mental health and how it's been handled in the past already recognize this, but uh, we need to do better as a society in taking care of all of those folks who have those mental illnesses. I would, yeah, I think it's, it's important because we've seen an increase uh, of suicidal 
tendencies with teenagers have went up. Um, abuse in the homes went up. Um, both spousal and child abuse, it's went up. Um, it, I mean, it's, it's interesting. You'd think the, the, the reverse effect would happen if we're spending more time with each other, right? Right. Um, <laughs> Which suggests that maybe there's some issues with our families yeah. that we've just been glossing over because we can say, oh, I'm just going to go to work. I'm not going to go home. I'm not going to be home. So there's going to be less stress with all of that. And uh, perhaps there's some things that we just haven't been taking care of uh, from a societal standpoint for the last 50, 60 years. Now, this, this is kind of a cool point of view because here from a medical side, from a mental health side, mm-hmm. you know, as a mental health worker, we see that a lot. I'll, I'll take, it's hard for, like, we'll have kids that have to go to the ER because we, we run an inpatient. And sometimes in the ER, they just don't understand. Like a kid will say, hey, um, I want to hurt myself. And they'll do things. They'll either physically, mm-hmm. uh, internally, whatever. And, yeah. and sometimes the ER docs don't get it. And then they'll say, oh, that's neglect. Um, so I think there's a, and the, the, my question is, do you still feel there's a disconnect between the medical community and the mental health community? Oh, absolutely. Um, yeah. Absolutely. And I think part of that disconnect comes because the medical community doesn't have all of the tools mm. needed. To, to take care of that. Most ERs, they, they do their best, but they are a, a, a fishing net that catches all fish. Yes. They're not great at any particular fish other than trauma and keeping you alive in the case of trauma. But um, yeah, when you have a cutter come in and you have to sew up 20 or 30 lacerations, which I've had to do in times, mm-hmm. um, we're great at sewing that up, but what do we do after that? from an ER standpoint. And the other difficulty we face is when we say, okay, we need someone to go inpatient and you have only three or four beds in the hospital and you call around every hospital with beds and they all say, well, I'm sorry, our beds are full. Uh, And we see that. Now what do you do? Do you just send them back out on the street? Do you hold them in the hospital until a bed opens up somewhere else? You know, we don't have a good solution for that. And, and so that you hit a big thing is that it, uh, it, it is a, I, I like how you said is the, the lack of tools because you guys get real, like you said, the fire hose is on the body, the physical, the, the, the home, the homeostasis of how to make somebody better. Right. What, what, a, what a virus is all that stuff you guys, but, but you, I think one of my medical friends said they, you take maybe one course on psych unless you go specialize in it. Yeah, it, it depends uh-huh. on the school uh, and That's what their true. emphasis is. But you usually do some psychiatry and then you do pharmacology where you get the psych meds as part of the pharmacology. And then, uh, you know, when I did uh, my psych uh, rotation, it was at a, it was at a state uh, institution but I didn't actually work with the psychiatrist. The psychiatrists at that institution were mainly folks who were uh, there to um, go before the judge and determine whether or not a patient needed to be committed against their, against their will. Most of the work was done by psychologists. So I didn't get a whole lot of medical psychiatry kind of training through that. And that was, that was the extent of my rotations. Um, once I went into family medicine, I didn't ever do a psychiatry rotation at that point. So that was a very limited 
uh, approach. And, you know, the interesting thing about that to me is as a family medicine doc, I'm kind of expected to do the initial psych evaluation, psychiatry and start medications. And then if the medications aren't working, then look into sending to psychiatry. So we're frontline, but we don't have a great structure developed to help um, primary care physicians adequately take care of these psychiatry issues. Yeah, and I I meet with a lot of them um, throughout the city as um, when I was working with a lot of the psych hospitals, the physicians would share that. They'd say, you know, I, I don't want to prescribe psychiotropic meds. I, I, um, and we'd say, okay, we'll send them over. We'll do that for you, but uh, mm-hmm. let's work hand in hand. Cause, and it was really good because we've, we found clinics that when the doc would work with our, our uh, psych, nowadays there's advanced nurse practitioners that specialize in med, med prescribing. Yep. Yep. And we, we use a lot of those and, and uh, it seems like they do really well too, because they have that nursing component. They're very nurturing. Mm-hmm. And, then, and then they really specialize in prescribing psychotropics. So that's, that's been good. good. Yeah. And, and the psychotropics are, they are a bit different, different. They're a bit nerve wracking from a physician standpoint. I don't like to start medications that I'm not going to maintain that yeah. I'm not going to manage actively for someone. Yeah. Um, and so uh, I, I think part of the issue from a family medicine standpoint is the management. Once I start someone on Zoloft, and I, I manage them until they get to a, an adequate dose. Then what do I do? You know, um, we see that with chronic pain. We see that with all sorts of uh, different issues. So, yeah, no, it's interesting how it kind of crosses over. So we, it, that was kind of fun to go down that road because it's it's such a big issue within the in the mental health in, uh, community, uh, getting physicians, getting other other sides of of the wellness to connect like you know because um medicine's not always always the answer either there's other forms like you've learned uh being a a do what what are some other options that people can look at well you know i'm just finishing a book by john hari that i mentioned to you before lost Mm -hmm. connection and uh, he talks about um, learning how to reconnect with other people, with uh, your community, uh, with nature, and getting outside and getting active and getting outside of yourself. Um, I love any of those programs where you can get out in nature and that are designed specifically for folks who are um, suffering from mental illness. Mm-hmm. You know, from a veteran standpoint, I, I served in the military for four years, and there's uh, some very specific programs to help with PTSD, like fly fishing and the like. It gets veterans out. Um, I love getting people out. If we can get them out to nature, get them into those kind of programs. I love getting people active in their community, reconnecting with their community, giving them a purpose rather than just sitting at home, scrolling through Facebook all day, uh, get out in the community, uh, cleaning parks, uh, volunteering at homeless shelters and those kinds of things. All are, are great opportunities. And then we mentioned earlier the cognitive behavioral therapy and some of the other models out there for uh, getting people tools, like I had mentioned, to help them deal with their anxiety and their depression. Because honestly, much of anxiety and depression does seem to be because of what's going on in their environment. 
No, they've just lost a family member. They were abused as a child or have been abused as an adult. And, you know, it makes a lot of sense when you've been unemployed for a year and you've been actively searching for work and you can't find work. Well, of course, you're going to be anxious and you might be depressed. And guess what? Zwaft is probably not the answer for that. <laughs> a good job is going to be the answer. Getting yourself outside of your house is going to be the answer. So, yeah. And, and you're talking about it. I love, um, have you ever heard of Glasser? Glasser, um, he has, uh, he, he was an author of reality therapy. I've heard of reality therapy, but I can't yeah. place the name. Yeah. So Glasser was the gentleman's name, Dr. Glasser. He, he's passed since he, he just passed a few years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, but in his, it's what you're talking about. So he says, Hey, stop talking about it, get up and go do it. And he, he challenged in his, his, research and I always love when they push the envelope right. um, he challenged clinical depression all the time he says when somebody would come into his office say I'm depressed oh, did you go to work today yeah did you go do this yeah so what makes you depressed what's going on so he would he would say on at work yeah <laughs> so <laughs> he would challenge a lot of times because we we he would say society wise when we hit something we we use those terms all the time hey I'm depressed Mm-hmm. Could you be sad? Could you be, you know, what, are you frustrated? Well, yeah. <laughs> I think part of the, um, part of why that is, mm-hmm. and at least from a medical standpoint, is we've done great as physicians convincing society that we have a pill to fix everything. Amen. Whether it be hypertension or high anxiety, we've got a pill for that. Yep. We don't just have a pill for that. and Now we have an app for that. But we have a pill for that. And in reality, a pill is not always the answer. But there are companies that do have a vested interest in coming up with terms to get into society. Like depression was not a huge, widely used term until the 70s and 80s, right? Yep. And uh, some companies came out with some medications to treat people with depression yeah. and in reality, maybe we needed to be looking at some other things first, but now we have convinced our patients that they need to come to us to fix them with a pill. You know, and I, I speak openly and I hope as you're listening to this, I, I'm not discrediting because you know, people do hit that. I, I mean, as a kid being ADD and struggling with high anxiety all my life, I mean, um, I've, I've experienced it. Depression. I mean, the shutdown was not good for me. I, I had some tough times and, and, uh, put on a lot of weight because when I hit that wall, I start, you know, that's my self-soothing, right? Eating. Right. Uh, no, we're very, we are very much alike when it comes to that. And so, you know, one thing I've done over the years is, um, so you say pill and it's interesting. I've never, I, I know I have ADD, but I've never took Renalin or anything. I, I was this close. I went through, I was having a struggle focusing with everything that was going on. I went through all the emotions. I went to the doctor. He sent me to a cardiologist and I just remember sitting in the office and I broke down crying saying, I don't want this. Right. And I was like, why am I crying? And, you know, and I just realized it, it, I felt like I was getting, for all those years, it felt like a defeat. Does that make sense? It makes complete sense. And I I listened to one of your other episodes, um, overcoming, um, Oh, what's episode 24? Um, oh, uh, I'm Jonathan Moody. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. 
uh, you were talking about that and I, I had to completely relate because I'm also ADD mm-hmm. and uh, I was medicated for it for a short time as an adult. And I've come to discover since then that uh, I don't like the term ADD or ADHD. Mm-hmm. I don't like to call it a disorder. I don't think it is a disorder. I think it's a different way that our brain works differently than the average. And I even hate the term average, but we don't have a better description there. Mm-hmm. But my brain doesn't work like some other brains. No. And it never has. And when you don't fit into society, that's a cause for depression and anxiety, right? Yep. And until society can come to appreciate the way we do things, because we do things a very different way, then there's going to be that difficulty. And uh, I, I think it's difficult when you go into the doc and says, well, you're ADD, um, here's your Concerta. Well, I don't need Concerta. I just need to be able to do things my way and I'll be just fine. And, and you, you've been able to do that. And it's funny because I remember sitting there and saying, you know, I don't, because I've always managed it through diet or exercise mm-hmm. or, or, and it's not, not, and I'm not saying that, you know, sometimes if it gets to where your, your safety and you're taking high risks when it has that, um, yes. that you, you need the medicine. Cause if you're, if you're doing things that are just out of, out, out of control, you need to control that impulsivity. Right. Right. And the uh, medications do a good job with that component for sure. Yeah, and ADD is a little different. And this is, I, I interviewed Dr. Russell Barkley. He's the leading expert of ADD and ADHD. And he says the same thing. He says, we got to stop labeling it. He, right. But he, he goes through and explains the difference that ADD has, has that anxiety, but then ADHD is that, that hyper, as we know, hyperactive. Mm-hmm. Um, but his brother was very talented. He's, his brother was an artist, um, musician. And that's, I love what you say, because we, we have to stop labeling things. And as society, look, I think this is where I'm going with the conversation is stop thinking a pill's going to fix it. You know, what are you doing before you get up to that? So I knew I had to look at my environment. Why am I at that point where I feel I need it? And I had to step back and say, oh, I just had a kid. I hadn't slept. There's a lot going on. Okay, I need. let's start there first. Let's get yeah. some sleep. You only get three hours of sleep at yeah. night. You're not going to feel uh, yeah. up to things the next day. You just won't. And, and business was, you know, the, at that time, business was stressful. And and so being an entrepreneur, that's just a lifestyle. Um, so yeah, there's yeah. Things involved in that too. So I, I love this conversation because just looking at it from a medical and from also two, two uh, kids that are, we won't call it AD, talented individuals that think outside the box, right? Spirited children. Yeah, there you go. We should come <laughs> up with a new name instead of ADD. We call it uh, awesome something, something, man, yeah, something just, uh, I've always said it, you know, if, if for my, my ability, I, I wouldn't have done what I do if I didn't okay. think outside the box. Right. And that's what makes you successful. And that's what makes us successful yeah. when we're not doing what everyone else is doing. Because was there some fear going into med school, having, a, having that attention deficit? I think so. Uh, you know, going through school. Yeah, I sucked at it. I, you know, I, I did well in school only because I figured out that the trick was that if you do just enough uh-huh. of what the teacher told you to do, you're, you're, 
you still pass right? my ADD brother right there that's the way we did it just enough and then you go into medical school and this happens uh, frequently for physicians and lawyers they go into their graduate program and things change the way the education run is is different and when you turn on the fire hose all of a sudden just doing enough isn't enough and that's where the struggle comes and uh, I did struggle immensely with the first two years uh, of medical school. In the meantime, um, my wife was flying back and forth from uh, Philly to Utah every week to finish her graduate program. So we had the oh. additional stressor for that. We didn't have any kids yet, fortunately, because that would have made things even more difficult. But uh, just that change in the way the schooling went, it was a real struggle. And that's at what that at that point was when I decided, oh, I'm going to need to do some medication to help get through it. And, uh, you know, I, I can't, I didn't stay on the medication for very long because I didn't notice much of a, a positive effect from it. But uh, eventually you figure out some things that you can do, give yourself more back to that word tools. Uh, reading the book, Driven to Distraction, was a big start for that. And uh, we made it through. <laughs> We survived. Yeah, you're here. You're still managing it. That's It never goes away, right? It never goes away. Yeah, but it's a gift. I've always looked at it as a gift. Um, I think that's what was the game changer for me when I changed my way. Even when I was out in Hawaii, mm-hmm. um, I remember, I don't know if you remember, uh, Moa. Yes. Uh, yeah. yeah. He was my, me and him, we struggled reading and... Uh, Right. Uh, Blotter. You remember Blotter? Uh, yeah, I do. Yeah. I do. He was my trainer. And, um, and, and if those listening, this is uh, some of our other lingo <laughs> that we talk. But it was our teenage years. But I remember trying to read uh, in the mornings because we'd get up and read. Oh, yeah. Oh, it was with torture for uh, poor Matangi. I think Matangi was in there. Mm-hmm. Um, and they were just him and Blotter would just because uh, me and me and uh, me and Mo would take about an, uh, five minutes to get through one page because um, because I I learned a lot. Um, what I learned is this is that I finally just I had the that whole experience of those two years. I learned to accept it um, because before then I fight it. I try to hide it. Right. Right. Yeah. No one. No one should know. Yeah, and depression, whatever, I always advocate. I says, hey, it, whatever the deficit is or lagging skill is, just accept it. You know, if if yeah. if I went into my, you know, I have my master's on my wall. If I would have went into that saying, hey, I'm going to pretend like I can't do this, but I asked for help. I got ADA accommodations. I got to take tests. I they, Some of you would go in and take note taking. Yeah, That's so great. I, I lived in the, the writing center. I mean, that was my... Um, I had a tutor, you know, I, I had tutors constantly. So I had the grit to, I think that's what I learned through all that is, is no matter if you're in med school or wherever I teach kids, it doesn't see, and this is good. Uh, Aston, uh, Dr. Aston is that kids, if you're, if parents are listening, your kid can do this. You can be a doctor. You can be an entrepreneur. I mean, I own, I have 250 employees and it's amazing. That's one. Well, not amazing, but I have 200. <laughs> well, no, it's absolutely amazing. Yeah, <laughs> I, stand, I stand by my assessment. <laughs> I, always, I always say this. I always says the kids are the easy part. The employees are the hard part. But, um, <laughs> but, but it's well, been fun. Yeah. 
It's been a journey, but um, so I have a question. This is one I always ask as I interview is uh, purpose driven. What makes you so driven? Why do you have purpose or what, how did you find it? Ah, so I, I went to medical school, not knowing exactly what specialty I wanted to go into. And when you go to an osteopathic medical school, you get some additional training in the osteopathic approach and osteopathic manipulative techniques. And uh, when you do that, you have these practical exams where you have to go in and actually treat each other in front of uh, one of your professors and they grade you and whatnot. But the leading up to those, you have to practice. And I'll never forget using my hands to treat some things on my wife. She was my very first patient and it was very effective and she fell in love with it. And you know, if my wife loves it, it's gotta be great. And uh, that first experience drove me to go into the osteopathic manipulative approach. And that is my, my purpose is to fix as many bodies as I can. (laughs) And to also teach people how to stay fixed. Um, Whether that be exercise or diet or a combination of those things, as well as managing other things in their life. Um, That is my ultimate purpose. And then, to add on top of that, taking care of performers, because performers, whether they be vocalists or instrumentalists or dancers, they beat themselves up on their beat up their bodies. You know, they practice six, seven, eight hours a day and then perform every weekend. And they are hard, hard, hard on themselves. And so, you know, again, on, on, on listening to that, you, you mentioned before you were into car cells, you were doing that. And all of a sudden you just said it's, want to go back and do this. And then now with the wife, you then said, Hey, this looks good. Mm-hmm. Do you feel now, now looking at it where you're at now, cause you made it through the blood and sweat. You, you, you survived, you f- survived uh, med school <laughs> and now you're a teaching physician, which yeah. is cool. You know, you came from teachers. And so do you feel, and I always ask this with people, see the reason I, when I just finished the book called purpose driven person. And, and the reason I wrote that is that, it's not a matter of what you, what you do, it's who you are, right? Right. Do you feel through all that that you're in your calling in life? You just Absolutely. said it earlier. So tell us a little about that. So where you go after your residency is a big decision. I had a job offer uh, on the West Coast, well, almost on the West Coast in, in Oregon. Mm-hmm. A great clinic, um, great opportunity. But it didn't feel after nearly a year and trying to decide what to do with it, uh, that it was the right place for me. And I took this, uh, this job here in Texas. It's at the facility, it's at the school where I trained in neuromusculoskeletal medicine and performing arts medicine. So I, I stuck around because I was going to have the opportunity to teach residents and medical students. Mm-hmm. And so I was going to have the opportunity to also work in the osteopathic manipulation clinic as well as their family practice clinic. So I get the best of all worlds. I get a chance to teach. I get a chance to put my hand on patients every week. And um, I get a chance to do some family medicine as well and uh, work with the, my mentors from the performing arts medicine side since they also work here. So it's, it's an opportunity to do what I love. And that is teach and treat. Yeah. That's what I was going to, that's what I'm hearing is that you, you get a little be- both, of, both of best worlds, right? So you're, you're still treating 
but you get to teach the new ones, hey, this this is what you expect. Now, statistically, as you're teaching, what makes what what do you get out of teaching? Because I love teaching because it it fulfills a need of mine. What gets what do you get out of the teaching part? Well, there's a lot of pleasure involved with that, right? Um, and a lot of joy from getting to help other people reach their potential. And uh, I, I love seeing other people succeed. You know, I, I like being successful myself. Yeah, that's great. But what gives me the, the satisfaction is seeing other people succeed and reach their full potential. That was a Zig Ziglar concept, right? Help others get what they want. And you yep. get what you want. Yeah, because yeah, and I, I see that too. I love that concept. And um, this is awesome, Dr. Aston. It's, it's cool to call you Dr. Aston now. <laughs> Yes, and you can just you can just call me James too. That's like cool. It. Yeah, James too. And it's cool, <laughs> James, to see what you've done over the years. And anything you want to leave people with today, uh, with everything going on, as as just James or as a doctor, what because yeah. it's pandemic, yeah. Well, and I get the question. Uh, I got the question uh, a while back of what what do I tell medical students? What's the yeah. best advice I can give them? And I think it's the same advice I give to everyone: is take care of yourself. Yeah. If you're not well, it's hard to take care of anyone else. So um, it's not a me first attitude. It's a take care of yourself first attitude. And then once you've taken care of yourself, then everything else can be taken care of. Yeah. When we fly, they say, put the mask on you first before you put exactly. on. <laughs> exactly. And I'm, I'm in that stage in my life right now. I, I, I've chased uh, the dream, the vision, and mm -hmm. I've been really working on my health, like getting it back to where I want it to be and, just got to not play soccer next time, but now right. I'll uh, just stretch appropriately, right? Yeah. Well, don't play with younger guys than you because they, they don't know limits. <laughs> so now you're supposed to be coaching them. Uh, yeah. That's, that's what I was trying. I'm like, Hey guys, don't, don't kick that close. Yeah. But um, no, this is good. I think the biggest thing, I love that, you know, stay away from the media, stop watching things you shouldn't. Because um, your mental health is part of what you watch. What you watch, what you take in, will affect you. Yeah. And who you surround yourself with makes a big difference. I notice with um, social media, I've had a few people that uh, can were acting really quite abusive towards me, and I finally just blocked them and yeah. shut them out. And you know, life has gotten significantly better. Yeah. And and that's okay to just surround yourself with people that are going to make you better. I love that because I've done that. It, you know, let go of relationships are negative, right? Right. Abusive relationships have no place in your life. Well, it's been a pleasure, James. I'm going to have you on more. This is awesome. Thanks for having me on, Matt. I, I loved it. I loved it. And um, you have an open invitation to come join me on uh, my podcast as well. I'd you love to have you on. Let's set a time. Let's do it. And then uh, if you if you have any questions, uh, you can reach uh Dr. James, uh, how do they get to your podcast? Where, where can they find you? It's, it's on Spotify, on, I, on Apple iTunes, all, all of the big podcast um, uh, host sites. It's called Roland Bones, the Osteopathic Podcast. I got to last part in. <laughs> I learned something. Now I got to go to Toro and get in Yeah, the right. You do. You do. You do. I got to go now because it's, it's painful. I'm like, <laughs> I know it's not broken because there's no bruising. There's no, it's just very... Yeah, it just hurts to breathe, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. But, yeah, so check him out. Go to his podcast. Uh, definitely go like it. Give him some reviews. And uh, and always, if you have any questions, please send it over to us. And um, and as we've talked about on this show, if you find anything interesting, 
feel free to send me a message. I'll send it over to Dr. Aston. He can answer it. Um, but yes, follow him. You'll learn a lot about what uh, both sides of the coin when it comes to medicine um, and, and how they, they hybrid medicine, as we call it, right? Absolutely. Yeah, Absolutely. I love it. And now I've learned something new is manipulation. That's right. Uh, I never knew that. So I'm, the I'm, patients love the manipulation. I, I worked right by Toro for so many years at University of Phoenix. I never knew that. Dang it. And now you know. Yeah. <laughs> well, take care, James. Appreciate you. And, um, and remember, go Thank check you. ourselves out on Facebook. You can also find out this month we're going to be also uh, launching our two books. Uh, so check those out. They're coming out. And if you have any questions, always remember, continue to work on yourself and don't give up on those around you and continue to live your purpose. Take care. Hey guys, thank you for listening to the Purpose Driven Person podcast. Something I said today resonated with you. Head over to my website. I would love to give you a free gift to download, but you can also email me at purposedrivenperson at gmail.com. And don't forget to head over to iTunes and leave a five-star review. And remember, guys, always continue to push your dreams and never give up. I'll see you next time. Take care.